Good evening. This is Peter Coleman. I am uh, the director of the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation and Conflict Resolution at the Earth Institute at Columbia University, and I'm uh, host of this um, half-hour radio program on peace and conflict at Columbia University. And uh, it's a pleasure to have a colleague who I've known for several years and who I've worked with and has been on the faculty in the master's program in negotiation and conflict resolution here, but has just taken a full-time position as a as an instructor in that in that program, uh, his name is Jose Pascal de Rocha. Um, I'll call you Pascal if that's all right. He has an eclectic background. He has a law degree. He has a PhD in mediation and <laughs> mediation, um, and he's worked in very interesting places all around the world as a political advisor and a mediation expert. Uh, has provided support, mediation support, for the Kampala talks between the government of the Democratic Republic of Congo and the M23 movement there. But he's also worked in Cambodia, Somalia, the Balkans, Afghanistan, um, throughout Southeast Asia and Central Asia, uh, and so comes with um, extraordinary practical experience and is one of those rare practitioners that can speak conceptually um, and work conceptually and intellectually and scholar- in a scholarly way about uh, what he does on the ground. So, Pascal, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank pleasure, you for having me. Pleasure to have you here. So um, maybe just a little background. How, tell us how you got into work in peace and conflict. What, what Was there something that drove you as a child, or what were the turning points that moved you in, into this field? I think it w- was more of an accident that I got into the field. Um, when I was done with my high school degree, I sat at home. It was in the early 90s. Um, the Soviet Union was about to collapse, and you had um, some tremors taking place in, in Yugoslavia, and the state was disintegrating. Home and at that time was Germany? Yes, I was in Germany yeah, at that yeah, time. Yeah. So, so I grew up in Africa and then moved two years before high school to Germany yeah. uh, due to family reasons. So I find myself sitting in the in the living room, um, no big ideas of what to do after my high school degree. You know, like every young kid, you know, do I go out? Do I stay home? Do I play videos? Do I read a book? And then just around that time, 90s, 91, uh, there were also many protests on the streets because of the Iraq war, the first war, the Gulf War. Um, and people were on the streets and brandishing placards against oil or we don't want to go f- to war for oil and all those things. And I thought, okay, you know, it makes sense. There's some activism taking place. But I wasn't sure if I should join or not. It was not my cause. But at the same time, um, pictures came on coming from um, a state not too far from Germany, basically two hours away, um, with many war crimes, atrocities, uh, the word concentration camps came back, and I felt nobody was really taking care of it. Um, certainly, there was some kind of political engagement on the European community side and the UN, but people didn't go on the street for, um, you know, to protest against these concentration camps. And to me, I, I felt confused. So you're talking about the the unrest in the Balkans at the time? In the Balkans, in Yugoslavia? that's correct, yeah, right. that's correct. So I felt confused, and I, I felt uh, it's not possible. I grew up in this kind of philosophy, never again, yeah. and it was still happening, and nothing was done to actually seriously address those concentration camps, mm. the rape of women, um, and I was. it was an impulsive decision. Mm. I went to the next um, 
recruitment center of the armed forces, mm -hmm. the German armed forces, mm -hmm. and I said, I want to sign up. Mm. I want to be trained. I want to help in uh, Yugoslavia. Mm. Of course, they laughed at me, but that was my entry. And already at that time, the armed forces were kind of shifting and transiting towards a new type of activity and new policies because they knew that the Cold War era would end, but they were not sufficiently trained or set up for new challenges. And I just was there at the right time and the right moment. Mm. Um, I spoke many languages. I grew up in Africa. I was, uh, I would say, transculturally um, competent. Mm -hmm. And uh, first, they didn't know what to do with me. And then after three or six weeks, I signed up. They put me up in uh, special programs um, by NATO members where you would um, jump out of planes, uh, you know, do all kinds of hostage-taking scenarios. Mm. Um, but very much putting me in the line of negotiating with stakeholders, trying to be on the ground, identifying who's who, writing reports. and um, So you're 18, 19 years old? Yeah, I was 18. Uh -huh. I was 19, actually. 19. Right, uh -huh. And my first mission came six months after I joined. I was um, dispatched to Cambodia providing uh, conflict analysis reports, analyzing stakeholders, um, who are the leaders, who are the networks. But mind you, at that time, there were no courses, no classes. There was no Master of Science program in negotiation conflict resolution. There was no DST. Mm -hmm. Peter, I think that we, we could have used your input back then. Um, so you were just, to do an analysis, you were just talking about statistics of, of, of number of troops on the ground, it was less, casualties? It was less um, statistics. It was more qualitative, trying uh -huh. to understand stories, narratives, making stories visible, render voices heard that were unheard before, understanding mm. the grievances that were not addressed. Mm. Um, so it was a different type of activity than just the statistics um, sure. and, and gather the numbers. It was very much uh, trying to get some human intelligence mm. on the ground of who are all these players. Mm -hmm. that, that was very important for whoever you know was mm -hmm. dispatching us. And those reports were related back to whoever wanted to read it and certainly to the UN who was reading those um, quite carefully. Sure. And very quickly, I then moved to another mission. I went to Somalia and then found myself in, in Bosnia doing exactly what I wanted to do. I mm. wanted to find out what is happening, um, who are these actors, who are the different sides. And I've stayed in, involved in Bosnia for quite some time. So you were working at this time for NATO or for the German military or for a combination? You know, the way the way NATO works is it has member states. And uh, depending on your status and on your sometimes pedigree, sometimes luck, mm -hmm. um, you are being uh, seconded to NATO. Mm -hmm. So you still belong to your uh, sure. national armed forces, but most of your work is done through NATO um, mechanisms and structures. Sure. So you may you may wear a flag of your nation, but everything else you report to NATO, NATO staff. Um, so, um, yeah, that was... So your task at this time was to be on the ground in Yugoslavia and to make sense of what was happening there and then report it back to NATO. That's correct. Yeah. To see what are possible entry points, um, who are maybe social entrepreneurs that we can uh, leverage for any type of peace process moving forward. Mm. And all that information, of course, made sense when um, the first Dayton talks um, started to happen mm -hmm. and where all this information was then provided to the mediators, the chief mediators at the time, um, to then try to find a way forward in, mm -hmm. in this uh, quagmire. Mm -hmm. So somehow you got from there to law school and got a PhD and then made your way to the States. How did that? Uh, how, how did you get to law school? What was your next step? 
Well, my next step was to, after some time, the armed forces to slowly phase out of the armed forces. Mm -hmm. I, I was tired and um, was pretty exhausted. For 15 years, I was just doing field work. 15 years, well. Um, yeah. um, there is a book out there by Kofi Annan, Life and Interventions, I believe. Mm -hmm. If I read that book, it just looks like my own story. Mm. I can relate every story to any type of mission UN Security Council has put out there. Mm. And at some point, I was tired and I felt that while I was doing this work, I couldn't even put a label on it. Uh, it's only afterwards I found that there's a label called mediation or mm. um, conflict resolution. Um, but I wanted to have more tools, more methods to, un to get a more whole systems view on how actors work, on how power is shaped, on how resources are being mobilized either for or against a peace process. Mm -hmm. And throughout my career at that time, I felt that law was the most powerful tool to get access because it also provides you the tool of language, mm -hmm. um, the, the legal language sure. um, to get into the party's mindsets, into the frameworks. And so I studied law first. Um, but then law was not enough for me. It was still too analytic and it wasn't really looking at the stories again. So I was looking for something different. Hmm. And after a law degree, I then decided to go to Bulgaria, where I studied um, a Master of Arts in Media and Communication Studies, where the focus was a lot on communication and cultural studies. So mm -hmm. a very different lens. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I also then started my PhD program, and I also had a Master's in Mediation, which looked at a sociology, psychological lens in mediation, not just a legal lens. At, in Bulgaria? In Bulgaria, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, which was a very interesting um, um, exercise itself. And then basically the research and the PhD was just an amalgamation of my experiences that I had the last 15 years mm -hmm. put into a, you know, a, a better context and framework that sure. made sense scholarly. Um, but it also taught me a lot in terms of um, application of concepts, models, um, not to hinder my thinking or not to be too lofty but sometimes concepts and models help you in certain situations where you don't know what to do sure and they provide you another lens another angle to take mm -hmm. and to rethink outside of the box mm -hmm. so for me that was the, the the advantage i saw in a phd program or in doing research sure. um, at that time so then you uh, at, uh, fairly soon thereafter went to work for accord is that right no actually i ended up in the states first uh-huh um, and then um, still worked a lot for the UN, also had a lot of my own uh, consultancy. I was working for private companies in communication and PR, mm -hmm. um, but then um, joined the program when the program just started in 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. So I was one of the first instructors in the capstone. Sure, that's the program here at Columbia on Negotiation and Conflict Management. That's right. right. Um, but... While I, I love the teaching, I love the program, I found it very pioneering, I felt that I wanted to take some of the learnings I took from the research and the academic environment back to the field. Mm -hmm. And of course, since I grew up in Africa, I, I, I've seen a lot of Africa. M my wish was to go back to Africa. and just happened that at that time, there was a position that opened up at Accord in South Africa and Durban mm -hmm. as the head of training. And that, I felt, provided me the right impetus to make the move and then go to the field and um, you know, bring the combination of curriculum development, program development, program management, but also paired with understanding the power dynamics on the continent um, and providing some kind of capacity building to many different players. Mm -hmm. At Accord itself, um, the training unit then provided training for government officials, rebels, uh, peace builders in the field, um, and also technical support for parties that were in a peace process. 
So picture the Sudan-South Sudan negotiations, especially after the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. Mm -hmm. They had to negotiate a range of issues, mm -hmm. um, citizenship, border issues, uh, extractive industries. And at times you find that parties are not really um, aware of the different instruments that are out there mm -hmm. or, or sometimes lack negotiation techniques. So that's then where an organization like a court comes in and provides that kind of capacity to really be able to formulate a language that adheres to certain standards and best practices, but it also enhances the capacity of actors to understand their interests and positions and mm -hmm. to make that, that balance. Extraordinary, ri extraordinarily rich opportunity, I think. So, so you worked with Accord for several years, and I know you worked all over Africa. You worked at different levels with, as you say, diplomats or government officials, uh, and then with rebels on the ground and probably NGOs as well. Um, what were some of the experiences or learnings that you found most compelling or most uh, um, most really inform what you do today? Were there particular cases or particular experiences that come to mind? I thought about that. I think for a long time I was focusing a lot personally on um, skills-based capacity building, mm -hmm. enhancing the skills. You know, um, in the field we talk a lot about effective listening, so mm -hmm. really you know, making sure you understand and um, hear the other, other side out. Mm -hmm. Um, but I realized that, especially mediation, I shifted away from skills to more competence. Mm. It's really about competence. It's really about contextual understanding, which is a, a skill you cannot teach. Mm. It's it's only a matter of if you're a trainer or an instructor, how many resources you give that party to have a broad understanding of issues. Mm -hmm. So that kind of contextual understanding is very important to really understand what is happening here? When, then, when does conflict start? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and so if you, if you know when it starts, then you also know what kind of entry points you have to mitigate, manage, prevent whatever, whatever so when, you're seeing. So when you say contextual understanding, is that, that uh, so I'm in, in Sudan or South Sudan and I need to know the history of this dispute, I need to know the current political arrangements, I need to know, you know challenges around business and, and tourism and that I need to know enough about the context in order to make sense of this particular conflict? Is that what That's correct. And you also have to understand who are the other players that you may not be able to see, who sure. are the, the other regional players, who are also some of the um, political tectonic plates you mm -hmm. have on the, on the meta level, you know, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. because you have certain forces playing in the background, maybe not directly involved, but whatever decisions are being made in Washington, D.C. or in Moscow, they do have an impact on what is being done on the ground. Sure, yeah. Um, so I, I, I moved away from pure skills building to more competence building, mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. I may say mm -hmm. so, with a focus on the question, are these actors able to absorb in their structures mm. the teaching, the learning, the knowledge that we are sharing with them? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are they able to replicate that with their own folks? So... Um, I think that that changed a lot because I also had to then redesign all my uh, my entire curricula mm -hmm. and I had to redesign my approach to capacity building mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. in order to design transformation. Mm -hmm. And um, I've only come to realize that when I was embedded with um, the Sudanese and the South Sudanese negotiation teams, giving them advice on negotiation strategies. Mm -hmm. And I was on both sides and embedded within both sides, mm -hmm. which was okay. It has been discussed and figured out. 
but discussing with these uh, parties, um, it came to me that they all have common sense. Mm. They know how to listen. They know mm. what empathy means. Mm-hmm. But somehow they were very frozen in their patterns. They were very frozen in their communication. Mm. So which is why I moved away from, again, the skills building because I had to do with adults that were either traumatized by the war or sure. that were fundamentally, uh, ideologically mm. uh, driven. Mm-hmm. So I had to find other ways to enhance certain competences. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, um, through different exercises, then try to get them to really take another look at mm. the situation, take another approach to the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not easy to do in the beginning, I must say. Um, sure. you know, and so another look is, to, again, to, to broaden their understanding, to somehow either visualize how where this particular issue or set of issues has a has a longer history or has more players than they may think or more complicating factors than they would think. And how do you do that? How do you introduce that kind of nuance or context into something as oftentimes what's really specific as a negotiation, right? A text, uh, working with a single text and specific issues. I try to introduce and work a lot through case studies. Hmm. I try to put uh, participants back into a situation that they know they're familiar with Um, not to repeat a certain trauma or a certain similar exercise but I put them back into a situation where they I know that they will do the same moves the the same behaviors the same orientations to the conflict to the issue Mm -hmm. it's either through a game or you know they have to prepare a certain exercise and I did a lot of simulations Mm -hmm. so I remember moving shifting away from pure lecturing instruction Mm -hmm. mode to a lot of um, immersed Mm -hmm. uh, gaming yeah and that gaming provide v- was very, very useful, was very helpful, mm-hmm. something I tried to actually adapt coming back to this program a lot more mm-hmm. than I did before. Um, I see the value in it. Um, participants in the training or students work harder. Mm-hmm. They want to work harder because they feel that they take more out of it. Um, so gaming is something I introduced, which was very unusual for the context I was in, Sure. Um, especially if you're embedded in actual negotiations yeah. where you know that parties, at the end of the day, they have to come up with some kind of tangibles for the agreement right. but you still have to do some capacity building right sure um, but still doing the gaming so that took them out also a bit of their uh, comfort zone yeah. um, so gaming do you mean you these are role plays that they do or or are they actual computer visualization games or what is a game it's mm, a good question um, in that situation I prepare a scenario mm-hmm. um, it's paper based so basically mm-hmm. they have the, the task to get into a certain role right so they have the story they have a story, right. they have a storyboard, and they are put into a certain situation where they have to enact certain aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also u- always in, uh, I always try to use certain aspects of the gaming that is related to the situation they're in. Sure, sure. But it's still fictitious. Sure, sure, yeah. So, so they're not blocked or... There's still like a s- sort of face-saving sure. scenario in it. Sure, sure. So, for example, um, I had a situation where we had to go through an extractive industries exercise. So it was basically looking at how does company, community, and the extractive industries um, representative think creatively about certain measures they can put in place to have the community being part of a process. Mm-hmm. Um, the company also buying in mm-hmm. to the process and the government also doing their part of the game to really a- engage the community, to share with them the information they have. Because in real life, in reality, what happens in the 
oil and gas sector, it's um, the government and the company that usually are in cahoots. Sure. Uh, the government giving licenses to the company, and nobody really shares what's happening with the communities that are actually living in that space. Right. And so at some point, the communities find out by accident that there's this company doing oil exploration on our ground, on our soil. Mm -hmm. And in certain areas, it's something very, um, it can lead to tensions. Mm -hmm. So through a, a case scenario where I took a different case that has been solved, so people also see that there is some way forward, mm -hmm. um, I then try to come up with roles for certain representatives at the table. Mm -hmm. And they have to play these roles out. Mm -hmm. I give them a whole day to come up, for example, with a strategy. Mm -hmm. So they sit down, they do conflict analysis, they do intervention strategies, they think about monitoring evaluation, mm -hmm. and they go through all the ramifications of extractive industries. Mm -hmm. You know, licensing, uh, transparency in terms of revenues, is there, is there a fund? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they then come to certain obstacles. For example, you find that um, the company, the government, don't really think about a fund so you come up with an example of Norway or East Timor that have put up funds mm -hmm. so that every citizen has the right to actually receive a certain amount of money out of that fund. Mm -hmm. So giving back to the community. Mm -hmm. But it only happens if the community is also involved. Sure. So this kind of gaming opens up on, on the, the side of, of the parties a lot of possibilities, a lot of options. They feel they're not, they're not constrained to just one position mm -hmm. or two, which is dilemma. But yeah. they are also in the choice of a basket of options just because of the gaming. And then they go back to the negotiation table and think really outside of the box. Mm. And then they go back to that exercise. They mm -hmm. think in that in situation where they have to write the agreement, mm -hmm. they think, what did we do in the exercise again? Ah, I remember. We mm -hmm. can maybe apply this over here as well. Mm -hmm. I tend to use fictionalized um, uh, names and places and locations. I've realized if I use similar... Um, situations or locations but existing ones um, parties and people in the, in the training use to add, tend to put themselves in that situation so I don't change their mindset because they're still stuck in their same strategies mm -hmm. because they feel something real mm -hmm. so you have to put them out of the real situation to something where they can do whatever they want to and there's no consequences this is just gaming they know that mm -hmm. but then they play it out they feel much more courageous to take certain steps and certain positions than if they were in a real situation. Well, you can, for example, um, you know, if you have a country, um, a country X, and you say, okay, this country is called Equitania, and the other one is maybe a country where you have, you know, a people that is very empathetic, you can call it Pacifica, um, and you have a river that uh, runs there, and it's either contentious river, you can name it, um, I don't know, any kind of, you can name it Avalon or... Something symbolic, right? Very symbolic. You can do that. So you can attach also um, names to a sort of philosophy, a societal philosophy that is underlying that, that mm. uh, mm -hmm. certain country or mm -hmm. that certain societal group because you want the parties to also reenact that. So it's interesting to me, Pascal, that you, in your work in Yugoslavia when you're young, you are inclined to tell a story, to learn a story, not to use facts and figures, but to really understand the narrative and the different voices of a story, of a complex story. And that's the method that you use to both understand, analyze, and then right. make recommendations uh, or provide information to right. policymakers. Then you go back and study communications, and then ultimately you find yourself, again, moving away from more kind of narrow skills training, right? How to listen, how to plan, how to, you know... 
how to win in a negotiation and and put them back in the context of stories Correct. because of the nuance and richness of stories and how that encourages a different way of thinking Correct. Yeah, around problem solving. Yeah, so it, it seems like there's a, a, a through the thread of your, uh, of your exploration and your work. There's some sort of evolution, um, and I tend not to say that other methods and concepts are not, are not um, valid, sure. but I always say and I try to argue for the application of a multicultural and a multilateral um, lens sure. to things because everything has a story. Everything that you read, every party has his or her own story. What you see, is you cannot take for face value. Sure. So you always have to question that. And for me, in conflict resolution, that's what you have to do. You have to question what you see. What you see is not what you get. There's right, also yeah. something else behind that. Sure. So I'm, I'm then more interested in the narratives of what is taking place. And sometimes narrative is stronger than a lot of data that you can put up. Sure. But the question is, when do you use what? Mm, you know, mm-hmm, there's, mm-hmm. A, there's a time and space for narrative and time and space for, for numbers and statistics. And the contract, right. Correct. Yeah, the agreement, sure. That's well, it's, and, and fortunately, you bring a legal framework as well as this valuing, I think, of the narratives and the stories. And you know that they're in the field of conflict resolution are, is something of a movement to look at really stories, mediation as a way of telling stories, sharing stories, weaving new stories, right, as a way forward. And it's a, a different approach. It's a more marginalized approach, but definitely it's a promising approach. And as you say, particularly as one way to do something, one way to prepare people to perhaps have a different kind of conversation and not the only way in, right? That's correct. I mean, that there's something where education of audiences, especially at university and colleges, has to take place. Yeah. Um, because I f- personally feel, and I'm happy to hear maybe is something we can also discuss about, but I, I sometimes feel that we're still operating in silos, although we tend to say um, we apply a multidisciplinary lens. And there's a reason why you know uh, researchers, scholars, practitioners operate in silos. Sure. But I also feel that right now, since we have the age of technology, we have to start also thinking in different terms and concepts mm-hmm. also that have to enter higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, we discussed flipped classroom. We discussed other ways to bring the teaching forward. We discussed a lot about uh, learner-centered and learner-suggested methods. Mm-hmm. And I think that that replicates also the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, these days, you know, identities are shifting. You, you, you know, t- yeah. Today you can be like, you can be this person, that person, but it's not always visible. Sure. So I think nar- narration or narrative methods are some of the concepts that can bring out these stories and then can all of a sudden start putting some sense in it. Mm-hmm. Because I feel at some point during the past 20 years maybe, we started to become too analytical. And if we look at situations that we have these days, Boko Haram, ISIS, um, Russia, uh, you name it, I feel that why people are confused and not sure where to go in the field mm. of conflict resolution is because we have to put back the term humanity into our work. Mm. And you can do humanity through mathematical methods. Mm-hmm, you can mm-hmm. do humanity through nar- narrative methods. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to bring both together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, they have mm-hmm. to both start making sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that might be a way forward to say, how can we approach this? these new tensions in the world it's nothing new has always been there it's just something different that's taking place these days sure um but many people are very shocked and surprised about what's taking place and the educational system has not provided enough lenses to start asking the right questions yeah no I, i agree with you i do think that the field of conflict resolution has been predominantly driven by 
either lawyers who look at the world in a much more specific way or the scientific paradigm, where, which is mostly for 400 years been about analysis and breaking things apart and looking at the little pieces and not understanding the whole. Mm. And the humanities does provide us with ways of communicating, ways of understanding that are much more holistic, are much more nuanced, are much more rich, but have a sense of coherence. You know, stories do kind of come together eventually. As as, com- as complex as Tolstoy is, eventually there is a, a theme, right, that comes right. together. And so there, it, it, I think it is interesting. There is movement in the field to bring more dance in, to bring more theater in, to bring, and as you say, stories, to really embrace that as a valid way to have people work things out mm. and, and not just rely on, uh, on law and science. That's correct, yes. Yeah. Uh, anything, any parting thoughts? Well, look, at the program, you don't have to be enrolled as a full-time student to actually, you know, get the gist of conflict resolution. We have also uh, non-NECR, non-negotiation and conflict resolution courses where everybody who's interested can join and, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. take a look. Um, so, you know, I invite everybody who's interested in the field to, to really take a look and also look at the work that you are doing, Peter. I think the the websites are very accessible in that sense. And... In terms of parting thoughts, I'm not sure. I, I hope that you know we can we can work on 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 that bit. You know, bringing humanity back into the work, um, so we really are starting to making sense of these new threats because they will still be there. Um, but I also see, for example, and just just this last thing I wanted to share is that you have many uh, top mediators these days. They have been trained in the political field, right? They have been trained in the 80s, early 90s, so they are accustomed to very specific standard type of armed conflict, mm-hmm. internal states or sometimes intrastates. Mm-hmm. But what we have today is 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 a more challenging movement of the the Westphalian state. Mm-hmm. The idea of rigid borders, mm-hmm. the idea of rigid identities. And we see that. Um ISIS is a good example. Mm-hmm. Um the Ebola crisis and the inertia of the United Nations to respond to it is a good example. Mm-hmm. So I think, and, and we don't have actually any mediator, any new upcoming young mediators mm-hmm. who are actually able to to respond mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because the training is not there for these kind of new asymmetric multi-sectorial challenges. Sure. So I hope that uh, practitioners and scholars alike, you know, maybe for 50% they can keep their silos and mm-hmm. the other 50% they can start you know, bridging the gap and and try, to, especially at universities, mm-hmm. um, to bring together uh, students, faculty, practitioners to really think about these challenges because I think we have great challenges mm-hmm. and we don't have the responses for those challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that we don't have the capacity, but maybe there are some missing faculties to really address those. Sure. So I I hope that institutions such as Columbia, the program. Um, and other universities will join that effort and, and really provide some kind of, not answers, but maybe even starting to, write, to, to ask the right questions from a different angle, yeah. or that will be helpful. Well, I love the idea of, of using the humanities to bring humanity back into the conversation around conflict and peace. So thank you very much for your time, Pascal, and uh, again, welcome to Columbia. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much.